This is ESG Decoded, the podcast powered by Global Affairs Associates to provide relevant, actionable updates related to business innovation and sustainability. Join Caitlin Allen and Amanda Shea of Global Affairs Associates for thoughtful, nuanced conversations with industry leaders that explore the complexities, the risks, and the opportunities connected to all things ESG. I'm Yvonne Harris, a consultant and co-host, and I will be collaborating with Caitlin and Amanda for the discussions that we will present on this podcast. Put simply, ESG is everything that is not on your balance sheet. This leaves room for misunderstanding, oversimplification, and the tendency towards one-size-fits-all perspectives. None of that will happen on this podcast. Enjoy this episode. Hi, welcome back to ESG Decoded. I'm your host, Caitlin Allen, and today I'm with Sujin Kim. Sujin currently heads the Global ESG Research Initiative at Prequin. Prequin is the leading data provider for all alternatives data, providing insight and analysis on firms across every asset class for fundraising, performance, and deal information. Sujin herself graduated from Bates College, where she cultivated a passion for the environment and social justice prior to joining Prequin, where she also participates on the asset class, think tanks, and the Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Awareness Committee. Sujin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Caitlin. I'm super excited to be here. We're happy to have you. So tell us first a little bit more about Prequin generally for anyone that might not be familiar with your business and what do you do to serve alternative markets? Sure, absolutely. Well, first off, you gave a great intro to Prequin. So, you know, thanks so much for that brief intro. To build upon that a little bit, we do cover all asset classes across the globe. So, you know, looking at private equity, venture capital, private debt, real estate, infra, natural resources, and hedge funds, again, covering all activity across fundraising, performance, and deals info. And then we turn that into workflow and analysis tools, reports that we publish, and then some blogs and thought pieces as well to add some personal touches on the data. Awesome. Yeah, it's a really helpful resource for those of you who haven't seen it. Feel free to contact them to have a demo. We saw it last year and um, we're really impressed with the, the breadth of information there. But specifically why we're having you on today, last year Prequin launched an ESG module for all companies listed on its platform. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and which frameworks influence the research and development stages? Absolutely. So we just launched this product back in November. So it's Uh, Very, very recent. We're really excited about it. It's currently comprised of two primary models. So one that focuses on transparency and disclosure. And those were based on, I'm about to toss out some acronyms for you. So I'll, I'll try to explain them as we go. So it was based on the PRI, which is Principles for Responsible Investment. SASB, which is the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. ILPA, which is the Institutional Limited Partners Association, the TCFD, which is the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, and some public ratings providers. Um, And then the second part of our tool is one that focuses on risk within portfolio companies, and that we did in partnership with SASB. Oh, very interesting. So, you know, there's so many frameworks out there, right? So many to choose from. Why did you choose these? 
Yeah, great question. So when we were in the R&D phases prior to us even launching this product, we were already doing a lot of client outreach. And one of the things they talked about was, you know, every week it feels like there's a new association out there. There's a yeah, new totally. report we need to build. There's a new data set we need to learn. And they were like, if you can create a framework that isn't unfamiliar to us, then it would just save us so much time. So we weren't really looking to reinvent the wheel. And we wanted to capture frameworks that already existed in the space, but were you know, industry best practice and, and ones that would be, that would resonate with our clients pretty well. So we started, you know, with a bunch of different ones and then just kind of narrowed it down from there. And going forward, I think a couple ones that we have our eye on to start aligning with are the EU taxonomy and the SFDRs. Those have become, you know, also highly relevant and important to our clients. Oh, for our listeners who aren't familiar, SFDR is the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation. Okay, that's that's really interesting. I mean, just to think about that this is, it's an area of voluntary, it's a voluntary market, right? So there's so many interesting options out there and a lot of competition and collaboration among the options. So I think it's really helpful to hear from you guys that, you know, you took a deep dive into it, which are the main ones that you're really tracking. And so I think that's really helpful for our listeners. Thank you. Speaking of your clients too. So tell us a little bit about who your clients are, generally speaking, and then how are your clients using the preprint data platform and the ESG module? Yeah, definitely. So our clients are the same firms that we cover. So, you know, usually people who are using our product are the same firms that we collect data on. And because of that reason, our research team and really every department works really hard to build really intimate relationships with a lot of these clients because they also provide proprietary data to us, which really helps the health um, of our data to prevent it from going stale and and make sure it's always up to date and also things that we probably just can't find on the public market. So I would say the bread and butter of why most people use our platform is for building a bridge between people who are fundraising and people who are trying to allocate capital. So it's, it definitely helps with the fundraising process, but the ESG data is standalone in the sense that it, it really flipped our value propositions on its head because it's something that's completely separate from everything or anything that we've worked on before. I would say the most common use cases for that one is for LPs to conduct due diligence on GPs and for GPs to measure themselves up against their peers. Oh, that's really interesting. So they're, they're you know, really using it for due diligence as as sort of a first initial use case. Is that true across the fundraising as well? I mean, if you're fundraising, you need to do due diligence, obviously. Do you see users using this data as part of that process as well? Yes, definitely. I think it's just an additional layer that they can add on top of the due diligence they were already doing for fundraising. So if they were looking to allocate to a firm, and we know more about the diversity on their board, how they're tracking carbon emissions in their portfolio companies. And it just gives them a lot of depth that they would probably have to go to them for anyways, but it saves some time, you know, 
don't have to have that intimate conversation. We can just find it all aggregated on Google's platform. Wow. That's so interesting because this is the one of the big complaints you hear from the investment community about ESG data is that it's not standardized and then that it's not widely available. But it sounds like in the alternatives markets, at least those uh, companies that are working with Prequin, um, that's actually changing thanks to this module. Yes, but there's definitely a, a long way to go. We do have percentages on how much disclosure is available for each firm. And currently our median is 5%. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so it, it's definitely moving in that direction. But I also think that a lot of firms find comfort in the fact that um, this disclosure by and large is not available, whether that's because alternatives by nature is, you know, a pretty private market, or on the other hand, is it because these firms don't have an ESG policy in place? It's some combination of both, but, you know, we're, we're definitely leaps and bounds away from where the public markets are in their disclosure. Hmm. You know, it's interesting because that sort of tracks along our client base as well, right? So in the past, all of our companies were publicly traded. And in the past, say, two years, we've gotten a lot of interest in, and work from private equity firms, not just at the, at the portfolio company level, but actually at the firm level themselves, trying to figure this stuff out. So it seems like pretty early days, actually, which might mean there are some potential market advantages for companies that are first movers on this. Do you think so? Oh, absolutely. You know, we don't want our tool to be used as kind of a ratings product at this time, but when a firm has all of their ducks in a row, they have all of their ESG transparency, all of their reports, you know, publicly available, they've already done all of that, then it absolutely, in an undeniable way, gives them a competitive advantage over their peers. Do you see that? And I'm not sure if you can track the flows there, but do you see that in terms of fundraising trends as well? I can't say that we've connected that through our data specifically yet. I think we're in early stages to start calculating some of the hard numbers against it. But we did launch a couple councils. So we do have an ESG GP and LP council that mm. has been running. And, you know, that's definitely a common point of feedback that we've been hearing across the entire committee. I'm totally going off script with you. So thank you. <laughs> For humoring me, Sujin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, this is just such an interesting conversation. So thinking about, uh, broadly speaking, let me take it back up a level to where we've seen a lot of more perhaps indirect pressure coming down to firms in whether it's private equity or other alternatives via institutional investors who are signed on to Principles for Responsible Investment, among other initiatives. Is, is your ESG module a response to that more broadly? Or what other drivers were behind the push to create this module? That was definitely a factor, I would say. We want to keep our pulse on the market and see how different trends are evolving. And, you know, with the PRI just gaining more visibility and also more signatories over time, there's definitely a new standard when it comes to reporting on your investments. And a lot of people don't know how to approach that conversation, but there's pressure from external forces and also from their internal relationships of, you know, why don't you have XYZ KPIs that are already built? So it's, Unsurprising because the firms that have signed on to the PRI have exposure to KPIs and different methods of communicating with their peers. But 
it also can get very quickly inundated with a bunch of meaningless buzzwords. As you said, you know, earlier in one of our previous conversations, an alphabet soup, if you will. So ensuring that they have data that they can trust really helps navigate that conversation. Yeah. And I, I imagine too, just having an institution like Preplan having, you know, put the time in up front to do the research and development on this. It's, it's something that a lot of these smaller firms, you know, simply aren't able to do. I'm hoping that that guidance is there, even if they're not going to, you know, go whole hog with it, that at least some of that R&D has been done from your perspective, which means you don't have to necessarily, you know, go it alone, right? Or start from scratch. That's one of the things we tell clients or anyone who's interested right, to talk about is just that, you know, sometimes people approach ESG and they think, well, there's really no standards out there. So I don't know where to start and they can't, you know, have a hard time getting started. But I always say it's actually, the problem isn't that there's, there's no standard. The problem is there's too many standards (laughs) (laughs) and there isn't a single one that say, you know, required by law at this point anyways, in the United States. And so knowing where to start and that there are, there is somewhere to start. It doesn't have to be doing the whole sun, moon, and stars um, from the beginning, but knowing that there's a, a group out there that's really done that due diligence for this sector specifically, I know is comforting to, I'm sure, many of our clients and listeners. Yeah, and, and there's no singular way to start either. So um, there have been so many clients who have come to us and kind of in a timid way, they're like, I don't even know what I don't know. Like, I don't know what questions to ask. And we try to approach it from a very non-judgmental perspective, because I think um, it's important that there's effort and intention versus, you know, results right away across every single facet of ESGI. I think they need to set some realistic goals on, on what they can achieve with their first steps. I'm with you hundred percent. And that's always been our approach to Global Affairs Associates is because it's, you know, there's so many potential missteps you can make jumping in the deep end of the pool right away (laughs) and taking that intentional, even if they're smaller steps, but that they're intentional and aligned with your business strategy, then it's more important than, like we said, just greenwashing big promises that you can't keep. So let me go back to your work at Prequincigen. You know, we mentioned that you work on the asset class think tanks and the inclusion, diversity, equity, and awareness committee at Prequin. Could you tell us a little bit about those two initiatives and what you've been working on? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I love getting involved at my company. I even did a short stint as, a, as our president of the culture committee. And uh, I love dipping my hands into a lot of different buckets. And I think Prequin culture Um, really encourages that, which is always makes it super fun. Our asset class think tanks are different groups that are divided amongst every single asset class we cover. And roughly on a quarterly basis, we put together these internal webinars that um, talk about different trends, uh, conversations we've been having with clients and different analysis that we've been putting together using, using frequent data to ensure that Um, not only externally, but internally that we're growing uh, our knowledge on the alternative space. So it's a fun way to highlight also a lot of uh, people at our company because we try to have different perspectives from varying people. So we might have someone who's been at the company since inception, like, you know, almost two decades at this point. We might have someone speaking who's been at the company for three months. So um, it's a great way to get people involved and that's always super fun. And for our idea committee, 
Um, we're really excited about that. We probably launched it last year. And um, with that, we started creating some different pillars. We have a women's employee resource group in there. We have one that talks about racial and gender diversity, LGBTQ support, and um, I'm helping with the mental health pillar. So we do try to uh, kind of specialize in our own different uh, subjects so we can create uh, I guess a subject matter expert network on on how to best support our employees and obviously in a non-COVID time how to also get a little bit more involved in our community. That sounds like really interesting work. I hadn't heard about mental health, a mental health pillar being part of an inclusion diversity program. So that's just very interesting to me. Is that common, do you know, at, at other companies or is, or is that something that you guys are pioneering? Uh, I'd like to claim we're pioneering it, but <laughs> I don't know if I can I just hadn't that. heard it yet. That's really cool. Uh, yeah. I, I think the whole like Zoom universe brought a lot of light to that. So I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of companies are starting to do it now because there's so much Zoom fatigue and um, we're trying to stay engaged, but also let people have space away from work however they need, especially in New York. Like you know, if the office isn't open, if you're not going, you live in a studio, you work there, you sleep there, you eat there, you know, we just want to make sure everyone's still staying mentally sane despite their mm-hmm. circumstances. Yeah, totally. That's a really cool initiative. Okay, well, let me switch over. I'm going to ask you just about your own career. You're um, not too many years uh, into your career, and yet you're doing really fascinating work. Um, And I know that there's a lot of people, um, both college students, but all ages really, that want to get into the ESG space. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about how you came to be in this role and then any advice you would have for folks wanting to to get into the space? I was super fortunate. I, I have to acknowledge the fact that time was kind of on my side for this one because um, I initially started at Breakwin on the private capital team, and I always had, you know, ESG articles to bring into our, our news uh, weekly sessions that we had on our team. And all of a sudden, ESG started gaining all this traction internally. And because I always had those news articles, they were like, oh, Susan, like, you know, some stuff about this. And I just kept raising my hand. And, you know, all of a sudden, here we are a few years later, and it's become this huge conglomerate and their own work stream at Prequin. Um, we've hired so many amazing, talented people from, you know, all departments. And it's really cool to see how we all cohesively work together. Because one thing I will say about ESG is that I've not met a single mean person uh, in this community, you know, like (laughs) someone and they talk about ESG, everyone's so excited to talk about it. They're all so friendly and uh, they all have this passion for wanting greater value out of their career. I would say for, if I have any advice on how people can get involved, similar to like the investment practice side, there's no one way to get involved. And it's really impressive because some of the uh, recruits that we've seen because we're doing some hiring to expand our team. Uh, It's really fascinating to see 
how people are getting exposure to ESG in colleges already, because that's not really something that was available at Bates. But, you know, we have some kids coming in who are like, I took a class on impact investing. And, you know, I have a professor who was an impact investor. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, you know, what great visibility. Not that I am discouraging by any means people who have never had exposure in their collegiate career um, on this space. Well, but, none of us um, did. <laughs> Um, but there's definitely a lot of opportunity that's growing really fast. So I would say, I know this sounds silly, but my advice is if you want to get involved, just do it anyway. It's not the wrong way. And, you know, it'll land you somewhere. I just love that quote that will probably end up on your episode description, which is, I just kept raising my hand, <laughs> right? You just, you are passionate about it. You were doing your own research and you just kept raising your hand to add your thoughts to the conversation. and you know, that's really great advice for so many things. <laughs> Just keep raising your hand until somebody listens. <laughs> I love yeah. that. I mean, that's what my mentor said. Um, I, I won't lie. Like I'm, I'm not that far outside of my college career. So there's definitely sometimes where I feel some imposter syndrome sometimes. And my mentor who is in his forties, he's very, very like well-established and has a phenomenal career. He was like, I don't know what I'm doing half the time, but like no one needs to know that. So that's also a piece of advice I have for any listeners. Like keep raising your hand and feel unabashed and unapologetic. Even if someone was like, that was dumb, you can be like, okay, and just keep moving on. Yeah, I talked in a previous episode with um, our advisory board member, Jamila Yamani, and she always said, it's okay to stand corrected. It's okay (laughs) to stand corrected, but say what you think. Right. And you're, you know, the surprising thing about a lot of this is that, you know, if you're really staying on top of the news about ESG reporting, investing, et cetera, you probably do know more than most people. (laughs) Um, I I think it's, it's all great advice. (laughs) Well, okay. Let's, let's go to a fun question. That was a fun journey into your career, but um, we always like to end on just sort of a pop fun question. Um, And yours is, what topic do you most love to nerd out on that your family wishes you'd stop talking about? Um, my family would love that I got this question because I am definitely <laughs> someone who nerds out all the time and speaks incessantly about it. And I always make them sit and listen to what I have to say. And they're like, oh my God, here we go again. Um, but I definitely got this from my experience at Bates. Um, and you mentioned it briefly in the intro as well, but I love learning about the environment and social justice. And there are so many cool documentaries and um, different platforms on social media that talk about this. Um, But whether it's uh, learning about overfishing and how we might not have tuna by 2050 or learning about how uh, white male sounding names versus minority names might come across in an email and how that can affect your career trajectory. There are just so many like really cool things to learn from like a psychological, sociological, anthropological, all the allogicals. And it's definitely empowered me to keep getting involved in the ESG space because I love that it's becoming more of an intrinsic relationship to um, align investing with your personal values. So I'm really, really excited 
and looking forward to the progress that's to come within this industry. I think that's just the perfect way to end the conversation. But just to add on to that, it's it's so interesting to think that we we do have we persons, you know, corporations, investment firms, you know, th- there is room to have more of a say in how dollars get invested. Um, and that's really this, I think, deeper underlying the ESG phenomenon is this recognition that there, there is a voice, like you do have a voice as an investor. I mean, for so many years, I think there it was like, well, I want to call my 401k provider and get them to invest in what I want. That wasn't even a thing. Like, well, no, <laughs> we don't do that, <laughs> you know, or, or what are you talking about? Right? No, that's not part of your company's package. And so there's a feeling that people couldn't, especially individuals, but even, even, even other firms, right. Or family offices that, you know, they just handed over to an asset manager and the asset manager was a bean counter and that was it. Right. And I think that whole paradigm has shifted to where not only do do people and, um, you know, specifically there's, uh, you know, a thousand studies out there about how people under 40 millennials and Gen Z are demand more of a, a say in how their money is spent. Um, but, but the, the, there's also this just wider recognition that, Hey, you know, we actually do have ways to influence the economy. We do have, uh, you know, the PRI, right. The principles for responsible investment, the level of influence that that initiative has had has had is is really remarkable the task force on climate related financial disclosure you know getting the financial stability board to uh you know at that level of the g20 countries to recognize the the threats and risks and opportunities related to climate change and establish a task force simply about that which is now driving I mean, really driving capital flows around the world. And I think that's just going to continue to increase. I think um, there's just this shift. It's like a paradigm shift in how the economy works um, that you've really brought up. So thank you for bringing that up. I think it's, um, uh, you can call me if your family doesn't want you to talk about it. (laughs) Like, please, stops, parents, you can call me and we'll talk about it. Ah, careful can, what you wish we, for, Caitlin. We can nerd like out. We can nerd out every day about this topic. <laughs> oh gosh! In like a month's time, you're going to be like, "Oh, I regret telling you." Oh, I shouldn't have told Susan that. <laughs> well, um, this has really been a pleasure, and I hope that our audience um, has a better understanding now of how the alternatives market is and markets are looking at ESG, dealing with ESG as a, as a topic. And if you'd like to learn more about Frequin, you can go to their website. It's P-R-E-Q-I-N.com or follow them on social media. Thank you so much, Sujin. Thanks so much, Caitlin. And thanks for everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to ESG Decoded. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you consume yours and follow ESG Decoded and Global Affairs Associates across social media platforms. Until our next episode, take what you learned today to drive long-term value for your organization by doing good for people and for the planet.